Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Mrs. Miriam Ribiat and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. To sponsor an episode, visit hevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast and bring comfort to listeners like you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Relief from Grief podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored the Eli Nishmas Rav Avigdor Ben Rabbi Sarah HaKohen. And we do offer sponsorship opportunities. If anyone is interested, you can reach out to me at ribiat at chavralomdemishnah.org. Okay, so today, Feige Steinmetz is on the podcast over here. Thank you so much for coming on. And I feel like I don't even have to introduce you. You could just start. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. Thank you. Where should we start? So the readers might have no idea. The listeners might have no idea who you are. So I guess let's start with you know, your son, Dovi, that was killed in the Mayron catastrophe. I don't know what you call it these days. Um, I don't know. You want to tell us a little bit about what happened when you found out, how you found out? How we found out. So it really started, I guess, a little over two years ago. It was 2021. It was a regular Thursday. Most of you recall, you probably went about your regular Thursday our shop is shopping regular day. I know I went to work that day. I came home at five o'clock and I started doing my regular shop. It's prep. I, I remember actually I baked my sourdough. Like I came home, my sourdough had to go into the oven. Cause like, you know, it was my shop is prep. Right. And then I sat down and I did my regular, you know, whatever I do. We were actually in lockdown in Montreal at the time. It was the height of COVID in Montreal, tri-state area people, you have no idea what I'm talking about because you were back to regular programming, regular scheduling, but in Montreal and Canada, we were not. So I was doing what I regularly do. I probably like went around, did my regular quick Arashavis errands. And then I did my quick, you know, cooking and I sat down. I remember there was a Hatzalathon going on. We were getting ready to watch that. And getting ready to be in lockdown because we had curfew. So we were very excited because that was going to be our entertainment that night. We were going to watch the Hatzalathon. And I had two children, one married son and daughter-in-law living in Israel, And my son, Dubby, 21 years old, learning of the mirror. And they were going to Mayron that night. And we were so excited. We were also going to be watching what was going on in Mayron because the year before 2020, there were maybe... 10 people in Mayron because Aristotle had been in lockdown. So we were going to live vicariously through our children and watch the celebrations in Mayron. And it was very, very exciting for us. And so between the Hatzalathon and Mayron, it was a full night of entertainment for us. So all of my kids, we were on our tablets and we were watching. And it was interesting. We saw on the screen actually that night my son's English name, Dovey's English name was Robert. And he had a very good friend, Yessi Carmel. And he was a Hatzalah member. And my son, Dovey, gave, in honor of his friend, it said, you know, flashing at the bottom of the screen. You know, it was like all the donations were being flashed across the screen. And it said, Robert Steinmetz in honor of Yessi Carmel. And it said $72. So, yeah, Dovey was okay. And then I remember all of a sudden, 
I started getting WhatsApp messages. Like my phone started zinging like crazy. And like, I wasn't really watching what was going on in Eritrea at that time. Cause we were very busy watching what was going on, you know, all over. And there was a lot of action that night. And all of a sudden everyone's like, are your kids okay? Are your kids okay? And I'm like, what do you mean? And somebody said, did you see what happened in Mayron? I'm like, what do you mean? What's going on in Mayron? And then my husband came home and said, the, the bleachers fell. I'm like, what do you mean the bleachers fell? I had no idea. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care what happened. The bleachers, I'm not interested in hearing bad news. Like we've had so much tragedy over the last year and a half. So many bad things occurred during COVID. We heard never like the sirens of it. I'm done. Like I'm not interested in hearing anything bad anymore. And then the screens all went dark and we were like, Hmm, this isn't sounding great. Maybe we should call our children but we couldn't get through. All the lines were kind of down in Eretz Yisrael at the time. So we weren't so nervous because everybody couldn't get through to their kids. And the night kind of went on, about an hour passed. And then we heard from my son, Svi, my married son, and he said, he's okay. He had left Meron. He was on his way back to Yerushalayim and everything was okay. So we just assumed that everything was okay with Debbie. And one of his friends had WhatsApped somebody else and said, yeah, Davi was okay. They had seen Davi. Davi, my son was six foot four. He was very tall. Wow. So if he was spotted, he was okay. And then I remember it was about 10 o'clock in Montreal, or maybe it was nine or 10. I'm not sure exactly. And every night we're a group of about 10 women and we learned living with Amuna. And almost everyone in the group had a child living in Eretz at the time, either in seminary or in yeshiva or married couples. And every one of us said that night, checked in. Like all of our kids had checked in at that point. And I also said checked in because my tzvi, my married son had checked in. And then somebody had said, Debbie was okay. And Baruch Hashem, we were all like, oh, we were breathing. Until two hours later, we still hadn't heard from Debbie. And then we realized it's not okay. And then we kind of went into panic mode and we started calling this one and that one. We started calling Hatsala and we, we started calling this organization and that organization. And we realized this is, this is not working. And we started calling this friend. We, we had so many people looking for Dubby and we're like, this doesn't make sense. How could they not find Dubby? And they said, there are, there's a list and your son's name is not on the list. So he's okay. We didn't realize there were two lists. They didn't tell us there were two lists and the whole night went, went by and we didn't hear from them. And the next morning at about nine 30, we, we got confirmation. They had asked us that we should send my son Svee down to Tel Aviv, to the hospital there, to like the morgue where they were keeping all the bodies to, to identify my son, Zavi. And we had a cousin, a big Askin, who lived in Eretz Yisrael. And we told my cousin, he very much looked like our family. We said, you know what? You, don't, you just go tell them that you're Tzvi. You don't say that you're not Tzvi. You go. We didn't want my son Tzvi to have to identify my son. You just tell them that you're Tzvi. You go identify him. Meanwhile, the Mir Rosh Hashiva also went to identify the two Mir boys who were Nebuch Nefzer, Yassi Kohn and my son Davi. And my cousin went to identify Debbie as well. And that's when we received absolute confirmation. But until then, 
we were like, we don't understand. Like the Israeli army can identify like these Arabs in foxholes and they couldn't find my son. He was six foot four. He even had his passport in his pockets. Like why couldn't they find him a whole night? And we kept calling every hospital in the area and they kept saying, no, Dovey Simons is not here. Who's, who's Dovey Simons? They, they must've gotten so many calls and so many people searching for my son that they were already getting angry. Like who's this Dovey Simons? Like who is this person? He was like the most wanted person that night. They received so many calls, but obviously we weren't meant to find him. So 9.30, we found out and then we had to get to New York so that we can get to Eretz Yisrael for Sunday. You had the Leviah there in Eretz Yisrael. Yeah, we buried him in Eretz Yisrael. I mean, I desperately did not want to bury him in Eretz Yisrael. It's so far and it's so hard to get to Eretz Yisrael from Montreal. It's, it's not just like you go to JFK, you go to Newark, you go to LaGuardia, you, you catch a flight. It's, it's a trip. You have to actually plan it. There are very few direct flights. It's only you know, a few months out of the year that you can get there direct. It's like, oh, wow. it's planning. It's like a two-day affair to get to Eretz Yisrael. But we called and we asked Shilas and we were told you, you can't take someone out of Eretz Yisrael to bury them. So I lost that battle. I kicked and I screamed and I begged, but it didn't really work out to my, you know, liking. So we went to Eretz Yisrael and we buried him there on Sunday. So that's one of the things that I really like about you. When you say you kicked and you screamed and you begged, (laughs) I think you continued kicking and screaming for a long time. We, you know what we kicked and we kicked and we screamed our way into Eretz Yisrael. It was COVID. They didn't want to let us in. We got to Eretz Yisrael. It was, it was a fight to get into Eretz Yisrael. I mean, we had Svi Glock and his organization, Amudim. I have, I have such a car set to them. They got us into Eretz Yisrael. They didn't want to let us in to bury our child. It was COVID. I happen to be an American citizen. My children are all American citizens. So we were very lucky. My husband is not, but he was a parent. So they got us these shores to get into Eretz Yisrael. But when we landed, they were there. Svidlak and his team were there to get us off the plane and to get us through customs. We got through customs. And then all of a sudden, Israeli security decided, no, they don't want to let us in. And we were on the timeline. Everyone knows that when you're being buried in Yerushalayim, you have to be buried before Shkia. Otherwise, they don't allow the body to stay overnight in Yerushalayim. And we were on a very tight timeline. And we're standing there and they're arguing, take a COVID test. No problem. Here's our credit card. We'll take a COVID test. Then they wanted us to take some sort of other kind of a test. And we're like, no problem. We'll take the blood. Whatever you want, we'll do. Just just do it because we got we to gotta get out of there. And they're fighting. You have to understand, we were leaving six hours. We were leaving Aristotle six hours later. We were not staying. We weren't sitting around. We were coming, burying Davi, and leaving. We were sitting Shiva for two hours and leaving. We weren't staying. We weren't having a party. We were coming to do what we had to do, and then we were leaving. And I remember they were, they were fighting. Seaglock was fighting with security, and it was back and forth. And my husband was literally holding me back. And Svigluck was like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. And finally, what seemed like an eternity, he looked at my husband and said, let her say whatever she has to say. And at that point, I could barely stand up straight. And I remember looking at them. And I was, I was like this crazed woman. And I looked at, the, at those 
people and I yelled at them. I said, you murdered my child and now you're going to murder his parents. You are going to burn each and every one of you. You are supposed to be a nation who has pity, Rahmanis. Each and every one of you are going to burn. How can you do this? How dare you? You're worse than the Nazis. You said and they looked at, yeah, I, I was, I promise, I, I couldn't even stand. My husband and children were holding me up. They looked at me and they yelled, get out of our airport. And we left. We ran to the, the cemetery. We ran to Harmanuchos. We had the Leviah. We buried Davi. We came back to the airport. I remember the vision to Rebbe came to be Menachem Avalas. He was not well at the time, so he couldn't come to Levaya. My husband is a vision to Chassid, and he's very close to vision to Rebbe. And when we were about to go back to the airport, like to the lounge, Siegla came onto the bus. He says, you literally put the fear of God into those Israelis because there were 72 people on the following flights who were coming to Buri, the other people who had never died in Meron, and all 72 people got off the plane and did not have to take COVID tests or any other kinds of tests, because as soon as I left the airport, they manually entered every person into the system, and they were able to just leave the airport. Wow. He said, like, you were just like, I don't know what you, like, I don't know what got into them, but you were just so raw. I I was just, I was done. I couldn't take it anymore. I was like, whatever you're going to do to me, do you want to put me into jail? Put me into jail. Like, you can't do anything more to me. I've lost everything. You, you, you pained me. You've hurt me. You've taken everything from me. What else can you do to me? You've done it all. And that was it. Wow. Wow. When we went back for the Hakamas Matseva, which was in August, which was, so this was April, this was then August, we couldn't get in again. They were giving us problems and we were back and forth on the phone with the Israeli government. And at one point they were, is that the lady from the airport? Are you serious? And Tzviglach tells them, yes, just give her the Yishor. Just give her the Yishor. It was such a crazy, like, I don't know. I guess Hashem just put the words in my mouth. I just, I was done. I, I can't, I just can't even imagine. I know when we spoke the other day, I told you my son was there in Mayroon. And of course I was panicking also. And of course I couldn't reach him. And of course I said, but I can't reach anyone. It's fine. It's fine. And I know I'm like the type to go to the worst case scenario. So I'm like, just don't go there. It's probably fine. He's probably fine. He's probably fine. But then when I heard about the boys that weren't fine, I'm like, oh my gosh, for those mothers, it wasn't fine. Help. Like, I, I can't even begin to imagine. I, I I could sit here listening to you and cry with you. And I still know that I can't even imagine because it's just, it's just. You know, it's, it's funny, Miriam. I was, you know, everybody wants to be treated normally, right? Because we're normal mothers and we send our children to the grocery store because that's what we do, right? We're not going to stop our lives and we're not going to not allow our children to go to camp and do normal things because life does go on after May Road and life does go on after tragedy. But I remember we were, we were at a party once, like shortly afterwards. And one of my friends so flippantly said like, big deal. So what if my kids go on the trip and they don't call me when they arrive? Everyone eventually arrives. And I'm thinking to myself, no, they don't. 
not everyone always calls you because sometimes they don't. And then she looked at me and she goes <gasps> like that. Like she caught herself and she came over to me. She goes, I'm so sorry. I said, it's okay. Just, just be careful how you say things. You have to be aware. It doesn't always, it doesn't always happen. You have to be so sensitive. It, people don't always make it. People don't always make that phone call. Like I make my kids when they travel from Montreal to New York, Montreal, Tarantosol, wherever they're traveling, you better call, you better text when you arrive because I stay up. I wait to, to get that text message. I arrived, I landed. I, you know, I can't sleep. Not just from Montreal to New York, but from Lakewood to New York. <laughs> right. You, you just want to know you arrived. It's a big deal. Right. I'm hyper alert. Right. I'm crazy. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's good when people don't aren't like fearful people living in constant fear is obviously much healthier to be like, yeah, it's fine. But or like you said, it's important to know that sometimes, unfortunately, it's not fine. So did, did when the vision Rebbe met you, did he like give you any words that like comforted you or like there was just nothing to say? I honestly, it, it was such a blur. I can't, I can't even remember a thing. I, I can't remember a thing that he said. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> there, I'm sure he said some words of wisdom and he gave comfort to my husband, to me. Nothing. I, I have no idea. I was in too much pain to absorb anything at that time. During the Shiva, there were very few people who gave me words of comfort. One person did stand out who did give me comfort. It was a Rebetzin Meisels. I don't know if you... Oh, you from Eretz Israel that lost... No, her. not from, no, uh, not from Eretz not- Israel. No, it's a Rebetzin Meisels from Montreal. Okay, I don't know. She's the Satmardayan from Montreal. She's the Rebetzin in Montreal. She had lost a daughter and a grandchild in the fire about 20 years prior, Shulis Nights. So she came in, she came in to be Menachem Avel. She's a woman who wears a spitzel, does not look like me or you, and had like not a stitch of makeup ever, but like the cutest dimples, always smiling. And I looked at her and I knew that, you know, she has her story. And I, I looked at her and I said, how do you ever smile? Like, she always has the biggest smile and dimples on her face. I said, Reb Samizels, how do you smile? Like, when did you ever, like, when did you start smiling? And she looked at me and she said, it took five years. And she was so honest. And I said, if she can say that, like, she was, she didn't say, oh, you know, it happened right away. And I, no, she, she said it like it was like, no, it wasn't easy. And it took time to heal. She says, one day she looked in the mirror and her lips went up and and she started to smile again. And I realized, oh, it's a process. It takes time. You could heal. There is life after death, but it's not going to happen from one second to the next. You have to go through the process. And if a woman like that, who, who went through it, can say it, then maybe, maybe there is hope. And she said it, and I looked at her, and I saw that she meant it, and she was so real about it, and she didn't hide the fact, and she didn't say it just like, oh, yeah, it was so easy. No. She thought about her answer, and she said it. And then there's hope. So for you, it's like less than two and a half years even, but I think you smile already, no? Even though there's still that pain, 
Obviously. There's a lot of pain. I thought about the first time I smiled. And I have to give Sarah Feige Gansfried a lot of credit. She is the founder of an organization called Maoros. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. It's more of a Hasidish organization. It's a Shabbaton that she runs for bereaved parents. She called me after Davi Shloshim. And she invited me to a Shabbaton that she was going to be holding in the winter. This was probably in June. And I think I totally brushed her off. I had no idea what she was talking about. I said, huh, huh, huh. No, like, whatever. She says, you're Hasidish. I'm like, no. She goes, you speak Yiddish. I'm like, yeah. She goes, you understand Yiddish? Yeah. You're Heimish? Yeah. And that was the conversation. And I hung up on her. And then she kept calling me and calling me. And she invited me. And I have no idea what possessed me to say yes. I went. We got to the hotel. It was a blizzardy Shabbos. I'm not sure if it was January or February. I saw the crowd. I literally burst into tears. And I looked at my husband and said, there better be room service because this is not going to work. And I just cried because... This was just not for me. And, and, and a lot of the crowd was much older, honestly. It was, it was an older crowd, Williamsburg, Monroe, Muncie, uh, Square Town. It, it just, it wasn't my crowd, but I have to say, I met the most incredible people. And then two women came over to me who very much looked like me and said, we're going to be very nice to you. And they're the nicest, kindest people. And I'm so grateful for their friendship. And I remember sitting there Friday night and Mrs. Brenda Katina was the guest speaker. I don't know if you've heard of her. Not. Oh, she's an incredible woman. She was invited to speak. She was the guest speaker who spoke about her grief over losing her dream to ever have children and how she adopted a family of special needs children. Oh, my heavens. And she spoke with such honesty and such humor about her journey through infertility and how she gave up her dream and her loss of having children and then how she went through adopting each child. And for the first time ever, first of all, I I cried with her. And then I think I left. And I think I was startled at my own, the sound of my own voice. Right. And then I think I saw color for the very first time. And I said, oh, my world is no longer black and white and gray. There's, there's going to be color again. And it took a very long time. And I said, this woman is coming to Montreal. I'm bringing her to Montreal to give other people chizuk because she really, she gave me a tremendous amount of chizuk. And I did. I actually did bring her this year to Montreal to speak on behalf of my husband's and my Animamim initiative. I brought her to Montreal and she, she really is an incredible woman. She gave me insight. She brought clarity. And she's just a woman to get to know. And she's just one of these people who, when you're with her, she brings lights. So it's interesting. She came to a Shabbaton where people lost a child and she never had children. And she didn't say, well, at least you still have four or five or six or 12 others. No. So she <laughs> talked about her loss, about her dream for not having children. That was her loss. That was her loss. That was her loss. And it was incredible. And interesting enough, she only spoke in Yiddish. And it was beautiful. She spoke beautifully, heartfelt, 
And it was a very emotional Shabbos. Wow. Wow. She spoke, I think, three or four times over the course of Shabbos. And it was beautiful. We all gained so much from that Shabbos. Wow. Yeah. I know you said that you went from, you know, Rebbe to Rebbe and Gadol to Gadol asking for answers. Did you gain more from like the Shabbos or you gained different different ways? <laughs> you know, we, we're all looking for that crystal ball, right? We all want answers. Mm-hmm. And I literally, I, I think I spoke to every Hasidish Rebbe, every Lefish Rebbe, every Makobo. And I was searching and especially, you know, one Adam Gazal that we went to last year, he looks at the person's name and he analyzes the name and he told us, he gave us a little bit of clarity, but not really what I wanted to hear when he looked at my son's name, which was Yisachar Dov Berish and Shlema. He looked at, he didn't know my son. He doesn't know who we are. Somebody had sent it to him. He looked at my son's name and he says, I have to tell you, you're, he spoke to us in Yiddish and he said, when I look at your son's name, I see that your son was a very big Balamuna. And the reason that he was able to be one of the 45 Kedoshim was because he was such a tremendous Balamuna that he knew that his pocket in this world was over. And that's why Hashem was able to take his neshama. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I'm like arguing with him. I'm like, I I don't want to hear this. No, it can't be like, no mother wants to hear this. No, he was not done. He had so much more to do. How could this be? He can't be done. He had a whole lifetime of work to do. He had to get married. He had to be a father. He had to raise children. And he's like, no, he knew with 100% certainty. He knew that his job was done and he, he was done. He was ready. His neshama knew. And my husband was like, he was so gratified to hear that. And I'm like, how could you be happy to hear that? No, I, I was like, I was arguing. Of course. You can't argue with that. Like, But does it match him up? Like, did you know yeah. that he worked on his amuna? Oh, so it matched up. He, it was really my husband and my son. It was part of, it's part of their DNA. Like some of my children, it's, you know, it's who they are. It's, they don't question. It's an incredible thing to never, ever question. This is what Hashem wants. This is what, like, when the Mehron tragedy happened, I was like, we all were devastated. There's no question about it. But my husband said, we're not asking questions. This is what Hashem wanted. And I'm like, we're not asking questions. I'm like, why? Why did this happen? I, I don't get it. We did, we do everything right. Like if, if you put us on pen and paper, we're not, we're, it's, it shouldn't have happened to us. We do everything right. It should have happened to someone else. Like find someone who doesn't do mitzvahs. Like, no, but my husband says, we're not asking questions. That's not our job. We don't have to understand. We don't ask questions. I'm like, no, no, no. We have to ask questions. And my husband's like, that's not who we are. That's not our job. We're you We don't ask questions. And I'm like, I don't know who I'm married to. And I'm like, this is, I'm sorry. This is where my husband and I are like polar opposites. I need the answers. I need to question. I have to analyze. And he's like, no, we do not ask questions. It's not our job. This is what Hashem wanted. And my son also, a lot of my children are like that. And I'm so jealous 
that they can so easily accept this is the Ratzon of Hashem. We don't question, we don't ask. But what does that mean that they accept it? But they still feel the pain. What happens when they feel the pain and they cry and they want their doesn't, No, one is not in contradiction of the other. You can feel the pain, but they honestly believe this is what Hashem wants. And we can't for even for one second question. This is the Ratzon of Hashem. And I'm like, no, no, no. I, I, I'm not accepting it. I can't accept it. It's taken me two years to finally say, Hashem, I accept that you did this. I'm not looking for answers. They never looked for answers. They just accepted it at, at face value. I needed answers. Right. Okay. I needed the why. Mm-hmm. Now I accept I'm never getting the why. Yeah. I'm never going to get it because that's it. You know, it's interesting. People always say that Hashem does everything with Toba. Mm-hmm. And I had this conversation with a friend of mine just yesterday. You know, it's so easy for people to say that Hashem does everything with Toba. Tell it to a person who lost a child. Hashem does everything with Toba. Ooh, <sighs> Toba, what's the good in this? I don't see the good in this. I accept it, but I honestly, I, I don't see the Toba in it. I accept that it was done after 120, May, uh, then I'll see the Toba, but right now, I see that it was done. I accept that it was done. I can't see the good. I'm being very honest. I accept it. The good, I can't see it. There are much greater people than me. Maybe they can see good in, in a situation like this. I'm not there. It means that you have to see the good. It means that if you're accepting it, you know that it was done, the tova. Hashem didn't just randomly do it. It was done with a reason. It was done. Right. But people accept things about Hava. I'm not accepting about Hava yet either. I'm not. I'm really not. Not at two and a half years. It takes time. I'm not. I'm not. I I don't think I'll ever get there. I accept that it was done. I can't change it because I can't resurrect it. It's not within my power. I have a lot of power. That's, That's where it starts and ends. Can't do it. I can't change it. I've tried everything. Trust me. If I could rewind and redo anything, I would. I can't. I mean, I remember during the Shiva yelling at my children, like the most crazy woman. And my friend had to literally like stop me. She says, you sound insane. I I yelled at my children. If I hear one of you doing one mitzvah, being nice to any of your roommates, giving tzedakah, being kind or nice, I'm really going to be angry. I don't want to hear anything good about you. Start being mean people because all I hear is how good W was. I don't want to hear anything good or kind about any of you. Start being terrible people because all I hear is that Hashem only takes the nicest and the kindest and the best. Start being horrible human beings because I don't want to hear anything good anymore. And my friend was like, you're insane. I'm like, I don't care. That is my right. I am allowed to be insane right now. Totally. I have a funny question to ask you when you were telling me in the beginning about that you saw on the screen that it says that Davi gave tzedakah. And then a few hours later, you hear that he died. You didn't be like, hmm, tzedakah tatzel mimaves. Oh, every, yeah. Um, tzedakah tatzel mimaves. I was like, I don't get it. Like, really? I'm like, Hashem. Rabbi Akiva's daughter was saved. I mean, we all know that famous story. She stuck her pin into the snake, right? And she was saved. He just gave $72. I mean, the stories that we heard about the amounts of tzedakahs that Davi gave, I mean, 
It was unreal what, what Zavi did. He was really a very normal child. He was just, he was a funny person, but he really did good, kind things. Why him? Why did Hashem have to take him? I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of people. Why did he have to take 45? He could have just taken 44. I mean, like, <laughs> like, I don't want to say he should have taken someone instead of him. He just didn't have to take that extra, the 45th. He didn't just have to take Dubby. Like, you could have skipped him. Wow. Like, I don't want to wish it upon somebody else, but like, could have stopped the 44. You didn't have to take him. I mean, his last, his last act, I don't know if you heard the story, you didn't. And it took me a very long time to even be able to say it that, and I had to actually clarify all the facts before I said them. We, we had to find all the recordings. Um, Davi, Davi, the Tildes Aaron Rebbe first said Shema Yisrael with everybody, and they repeated all the words verbatim. You know, he said Shema Yisrael, Shem Hashem Echad, and then everybody in the crowd repeated the words. And we actually have on video because Davi's so tall. You were able to pick him out of the crowd. And those were one of the last words that he saw. And we have the video of Davi saying Shema Yisrael. We see him in the crowd saying the words. When the stampede actually started, Mr. Chayot was lost a child. He had gone to Meron with his two children. And Mr. Chayot got injured during the stampede. And he had gone to Meron with two of his children. And he was trying to get close to his children. And because he injured his foot, he fell down and he was like a few feet away and he could not stand to get to his child. And he was literally calling out to them and he couldn't get there. And he watched from a distance, this whole story unfold. Davi and his friend, Yessi Cohn from Cleveland, they were about a year apart, were stuck. Both of them were about six, three and six, four. They realized they couldn't go forward. They couldn't go backwards. And they saw these two boys. And there was nothing to do. They, they were stuck. They were surrounded by people. And it was a do or die moment. And they took their arms and they formed almost like an arch around these two boys. And they kept yelling to these two boys, just breathe, breathe, breathe. And they fell on top of the boys. And they, as they were falling, they continued to yell, breathe. And this boy who was nine or 10 years old looked up. And the last face he saw before he lost consciousness was Dubby's. And he was with his brother. He was holding his brother's hand. And Yassi and Davi were on top of them. Anyways, he woke up many hours later and he was in a hospital. And next to his bed was a paper with a picture of all the 45 Kedoshim, all the 45 people who had been Nifter in Meron with their names and the countries where they came from. And he saw my son Davi and it said Davi Steinmetz and it said Canada. When everybody was sitting Shiva, we sent my cousin, um, my Shigershin Steinmetz, he was this Askin who had identified my son. We sent him to all the families on behalf of our family to go be Menachem Aval, all the families sitting Shiva. He went to the Chayot family and he went to knock on their door to go be Menachem Aval. And they opened the door. And he said, this nine-year-old boy answered the door. And he says, what's your name? He says, Steinmetz. And he says, Steinmetz from Canada? And so my cousin said, yeah, Steinmetz from Canada. And he quickly grabbed my cousin He grabbed, and he took him into his mother. And he says, this is Steinmetz from Canada. 
he associated my son Davi with my cousin. And he says, this is the person he saved my, he saved my life. And he told over the whole story where his father, who had been just a few feet away, saw my son Davi save this little nine-year-old's life. Unfortunately, he couldn't save his brother. His brother succumbed. He lost oxygen and didn't survive. But this nine-year-old was one of the survivors of May Road. Wow. So, you know, this was Davi. His last act was he didn't do for himself. He did for Yemen. So when the Ami Maman Foundation start, that was before he was left or after? No, it started after the Shabbos. We got it from Shabbat Friday. My husband went to shul that Shabbos. And the Rav speaks every Shabbos between, I think, Shachos and Musaf. I don't know exactly. I don't go to shul very often. Our shul is a very, very close-knit shul. And Rav Unzefer is the Rav of our shul. And he spoke. And he had printed out Animam cards, 100 cards for the shul. And he asked everybody, for those that don't say and for those that do say, if they could take 90 seconds of their time every day and please say Animam and Mu'ili Nishmas Davi. My husband had been saying it already for many, many years. But the idea appealed really to everybody in the shul because literally everyone in our shul is, it's like a four-generation shul. Like everyone's been there for generations. If not, you're a cousin, a relative. Like it's really one of these shuls where everyone's connected. And it was interesting. Someone just, a member like of the shul just told me, he said, when the Leviah happened, they had um, a live hookup in the shul. He said, he never saw so many grown men just sitting there sobbing. He said, it was the saddest sight. He said, he doesn't recall ever just seeing grown men crying. Wow. He said, that was our shul. So the Rav gave out these Animam cards. And it's just the idea of Animamim, which my husband had been saying, my husband said, you know what? I want to see if I can get a thousand people to say it by the next Shabbos. Like, so he started calling people and he got 10,000 people to say it. Wow. And then he says, 10,000 people? Let me see if I can get another 10,000 people. And then slowly but surely, it was right before camps and all the camps started saying it. So we printed cards. And then what happened was, there was Chesky Elias, Rabbi Chesky Elias. He started giving a shear twice a week on Animamim in our shul. So then they said, you know what? He's giving a shear. Let's put the shearim on the website. So then the Animamim.net um, website went up. So they started posting all his shearim on the website. Then after that, they said, you know what? Our school said, we're going to put out a book. So he wrote the book, Rabbi Elias. And then from there, it just, it spiraled. Wow. And one thing led to the other. I mean, we printed, we just went into our fourth or fifth printing of the cards. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. Then we printed the book in English. We did it in French. I think the next language is either going to be Hebrew or Yiddish. Um, every year for Lagwama, we'd like to come out. I mean, the first printing of the book, they said, if we sell two to 3,000 copies, it'll be amazing. I think they sold 10,000 copies. Are you serious? Yeah, it went viral. It was amazing. Wow. The response was overwhelming. It it just was an incredible thing. It doesn't talk to one person. It talks to everybody. It doesn't matter where you're holding in in your Yiddishkeit. Everybody just needs something to hold on to. Right, right. It also talks to people who who are grieving. Because if you're angry, 
which I was definitely angry, you need a little bit of faith to hold on to because if you're angry, you, you need someone to be angry at. So find someone, find something, hold on to your faith because you're going to need someone, something you, you need to let out, you need to vent. So it's, it's a connection. So does it give you comfort? It took me a year to be able to say the words of Ani Maman. It was a trigger for me. It was my husband's baby. It was not mine. Now I'm okay with the words. The song, I, I couldn't even listen to. It took two years for that. Mm. Now I'm okay with it. Right, right. It definitely was a trigger for me. Wow. It's a process. I mean, grief takes time. It, you, you really have to go through it. You don't wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm okay. I'm fine. You have to go through every step. You have to feel, you know, grief is not your friend. It's an acquaintance. You, you really get to know grief inside out, every aspect of it. And I wouldn't say it's an acquaintance or a friend. It's like a best friend. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's a very well-known acquaintance. You see, I don't want to call it my friend because we're not on such great terms. We're on terms. <laughs> it's a friend of me. Friend, a frenemy is a great way to term it. Yeah, <laughs> we're frenemies, right? But yeah, if you don't go through the whole process, you, you'll never get out of that funk. You're not. So what happens today if you meet someone that lost a child, and it's you know much sooner, shortly after they lost a the child, whatever it is, and they're talk about a moon and acceptance, and they laugh and they seem happy. Like, do you believe that they're really holding there, or do you think like, okay, you're just in denial, and it's gonna all explode one day? It's a coping mechanism, definitely a coping mechanism. They haven't gone through the process yet, honestly. I think it's going to hit them, honestly. Interesting, I had a phone call from somebody recently who had lost a child. And I had called a few times and I left messages. They weren't ready to talk. And that's fine. Everyone on their own levels. But I just wanted to leave the lines of communication open. And they finally reached you know, out. And the first question she asked was like, are you a Rebison? I'm like, oh, if you're looking for Rebison, you have the wrong number. Like I am no Rebison by any stretch. You want, you want the real deal? You have it. Like you want to tell me you're going to be fine in three days from now? You're not. It takes time and it's going to hurt and it's always going to hurt, but you will learn how to navigate through your pain. The hole will always be there. It doesn't go away. But you learn, you become the new you. I'm I'm Faggy 2.0. It's never going to go away, the pain. It's always going to be there. But I will learn what triggers me. I will learn how to re-navigate my journey. I'm never going to be the same person that I was. I can't be. A limb of mine was severed. An extension of me is no longer there. So you have to relearn. You have to reroute. You have to change your trajectory, but you learn how to do it. You'll never be that same person who you were, but that's okay. That's how, that's how you grow. It doesn't mean you're not going to be okay. You'll be okay. Just in a different way. Right. Right. And then one mother said to me, there was two Levias that day, my child and the old me, because that day part of me died and I'm a new me today. It's true. She said it exactly how it is. And people don't get it. That old me ceases to exist. There are parts of me that, that are still here, but a lot of me changed. Right. right. Not in a good way, not in a bad way. It's different. 
I don't have patience for a lot of stupidities for a lot. Like, just get over yourself. Like, I definitely want to hear when you have a bad day, I want to hear about it. I do want to hear you fetch. I want to hear all the shtism and all the ridiculous things that happen. I do want to hear that. I I want to listen to all the things that go wrong in your life. I do want to hear that because you're my friend and all that to a certain degree. I don't want to hear about it for four hours. Right. 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 After an hour, get over yourself. (laughs) That that's my limit. After an hour, you're done. Right. I remember we have a group chat, my siblings and I, and, and this one had a huge flood in her house and it really was terrible. And my, my brother shattered his elbow and he fractured his neck and it was, and I'm giving, and they're all discussing all the bad things. And this one, and everyone had a bad day. And I'm like, listen, and it's an hour, it's two hours. And I'm finally like, my kids, I, I win hands down end the story. And they're like, you will always win. <laughs> I'm like, it's true. I will always win the argument. And I, I do want to hear it. I want to hear everyone's, you know, everyone's a lot of bands and rants to a certain degree. But after a while, like, it, it's not like the worst thing in the world. Like, if you can fix it, get over it. Right, right, right. Okay. I, I think that you're amazing. I think that your growth process is amazing because I just, I, I love the the realness. And I think a lot of people are, you know, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for realness. I guess before we end, I don't know if there's anything that we missed, any closing messages or anything that you think that that you didn't say that people should know. I, I think that everyone has to realize that we're also very uber sensitive. Everyone has to be aware that we all wear a mask. Every single one of us wear masks. We have good days. We have bad days. We have really, really bad days. When it comes to Yemen Tovim, we're, we're miserable. We're really miserable. Our losses are, and degree, difficult. They're hard. People should realize that when it comes before Yamtiv, we can't cope. We really don't cope. Birthdays. When it comes to a birthday, the month of birthdays, they're like, I think they're worse than your sites. Yeah. I think that birthdays are that year... He should have been 24. He should have been 25. Could you imagine what he would be doing at 25? Oh, he could have been doing this. The the realizations of all the what ifs, what could have been, they're heartbreaking. The friends who are getting married, it's so difficult. People should just be sensitive. You you can't teach people etiquette. you know, if they didn't learn it beforehand, we can't teach it to them. So people just have to really be careful and be sensitive. And it's hard. And I understand people don't, people truly are, are not born to be mean or insensitive. People make mistakes. So we try to judge people favorably, but people also have to be aware. We are very sensitive and people should be a little bit more weary and, you know, I, I do have to say one thing struck me is I don't think that until I suffered this loss that I ever wanted Mashiach to come as much as I wanted it till now. I don't think anybody who suffered loss, whether it's a parent that you lost or a sibling or a child, I don't think maybe it's an ulterior motive. I just want to hear I'm sure you wanted to. I don't think that you wanted Mashiach as much 
until now. It, it's a physical longing and a physical wanting. I think now more so than ever. Right, right. I, I guess when, right, when we feel the pain of the gullus, it's like, oh my gosh, this is gullus. This is pain. What, what can we do to end it? It's physical pain. It's physical pain for sure. And now I physically yearn for Mashiach. I, I don't think like, like now I remember during COVID and I said it, I said it a few times. We were very good people. We were so good during COVID, right? No one had time to do a virus. We were very busy cooking, cleaning, taking care of our families, right? We all thought Mashiach was coming in 2020. We were good. That Pesach, we were amazing. Mm-hmm. And then Mashiach didn't come. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was for sure coming. But now I physically ache. Wow. So. Okay. Maybe it's your, your aching and your tefillas that will really bring him. I think Halavai, all of our tefillos should just, all of our aches should bring Mashiach. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming on. You have just listened to an episode by Mrs. Miriam Riviette. For more episodes or for additional information about future episodes, visit our website at www.chevralomdemishnah.org or email mribiet at chevralomdemishnah.org. To submit questions or comments for this speaker, to suggest another speaker who might be mechazek others, or to sponsor a podcast, visit chevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast.